three weeks or so, last week, this week, and next week, uh, before we launch into kind of the second part of it. Uh, but trying to lay some foundations, some biblical foundations uh, for what it means to be the people of God who are concerned about and living out the mission of God. We participate with what God is doing in the world as he restores all things back to himself in Christ and in the Spirit. And so we are talking about the fact that we ourselves need to be missionized. And we have kind of two ways of thinking about it. And one way, we have to have mission eyes. We have to be able to see what is God doing. And what is God doing in the restoring of all things back to himself? But it's not enough just to see, oh, I recognize what God might be doing. But that we need to become part of it. Our lives need to be aligned and participating in the mission of God. We ourselves need missionized. These are really principles of discipleship that we're talking about. That, that God has called us to join him, to participate with him in this mission of God and restoring all things back under Christ. What we called last week the shalom reign of God. And that beautiful word shalom talks about the, the completeness of everything in harmony once again. And that's what God is doing. And that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we join with God in that very thing. So we're the church shaped by the mission of God. The kind of things we should be doing are the kind of things that Jesus is doing, that God is doing. As he restores his shalom reign, the harmony of all things. Well, that was a, a little recap from last week. But today, we're going to look at this mission of God through different eyes. We're going to look through the eyes of Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. So that's the bookends of the Bible. So the creation stories, first two chapters, and then the final story, the last two chapters. Where all of this is heading with God, finally and eternally. And so we're being invited to start this journey, this journey of being missionized by being, in some ways, focused and shaped by both the beginning of the story and the end of the story. The beginning and the end. So let's start at the very beginning. Creation. Now next week the children as they launch into this new program that they're going to be doing are going to be starting with creation. So this will give you something to share in your conversations with them. But creation. And in creation God speaks or uses a word that in the Hebrew is called tov. T-O-B. Now, I'm not sure this. There. Am I doing that or are you doing that? I'm doing that. Huh. <laughs> Let there be light. <laughs> and all the way through Genesis chapter 1, you'll notice this word appear again and again and again. Tov. Means good. That God looks at something in his creation, something that he's done, and he says, that's good. Now, by God's standards... That word holds a lot of power, don't you think? 
that God would stand and look and say, wow, that's Tov. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the Genesis 1 story. Not all of it. Well, well, most of it, but not all of it. And so every time we come to the bit that says, and God saw that it was good, I put in the word Tov. And so you're going to join with me when we get to that bit. And I'll say, and God said that it was, and you'll go, Tov. Okay? And we'll remind ourselves of the goodness of creation. Okay, so here's how we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Just to say to anyone, if you're feeling a bit of darkness at the moment, let me remind you that the work of the Spirit is often hovering over darkness seeking to bring light you get that for free today and God said let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was that's the one and he separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and the gathered water, waters he called seas. And God saw that it was. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And day four, this is the bit that I'll skip through a few things. There were lights in the sky, day and night. Day five, there was fish in the sea. Birds in the sky, day five, living creatures and animals were created, and God saw that it was. Then God said, Let us make human beings, humanity, in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, and over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created humanity in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them and God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground God saw all that he had made and it was very tall and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day I think this is an amazing opening sometimes I find it a bit overwhelming using the word awesome in the real sense of the word and imagining what that moment was like where, where God looked upon his creation, even humanity. And he looked and he said, this is 
very tov. Now I know they're all weak now, you guys are going to be around saying, man, that was tov. <laughs> what a great time we had, wasn't it? Tov. But what an amazing picture. The creation. And it was very good. And if that's God who's saying that, there must be something very, very good about this creation that he's put us within. What an amazing God. What an amazing creation. So what happened? What happened? Well, if you were to read on in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, you'll read about the fact that in this creation, God gives abundantly. In all this very tall creation, he says, look around, Adam and Eve. You can have whatever you want in here with maybe one or two exceptions. And what happens is in our life, we often get focused on the one or two exceptions and we miss the great abundance and generosity of God that he gives us. We focus on the one or two things that he might say no to. But actually God and creation and even still is the God of abundance and generosity. And he gives freedom and choice and love. The problem is humanity chooses to rebel, to go against God, to disobey God. It is the human story in every generation. And so in all the goods of creation, the rebellion of humanity brings something of corruption. And corruption enters creation. But God has not stopped loving his creation. He's not stopped loving those he created. And so his restoration mission begins as he seeks to draw us back and draw his creation back under his shalom reign. And everything thereafter from Genesis 1 and 2 is God's restoration mission. Right up until the very end. God restoring humanity and all creation back to himself. The God of heaven and earth has not abandoned the earth. The God of heaven and earth has not withdrawn back from the earth and, and retreated into heaven. Because in spite of the corruption on the earth, he still sees the earth and humanity. It says, but it's told. Rebellion has corrupted it, but it's told. It is worth redeeming. We are worth restoring and redeeming. The creation is worth restoring and redeeming because it's very tough. And everything after Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is the restoration mission of God. Now, before we go on and, and jump to the end of the story, let me just highlight some modern challenges that we face in reading texts about heaven and earth 
Now we're going to have a little bit of theology and a little bit of philosophy in, uh, in this section. But it's important that we understand that we have been shaped by other forces than just our religious heritage. There are cultural philosophies that have shaped us and therefore our understanding of certain things. What I want to try and do is acknowledge some of those things and try and return to a biblical Hebrew understanding of the way things look about the heavens and the earth. We as a society, particularly in the West, have been influenced by the philosophy of Plato. So we have a, what would be called a Platonic, not Plutonic, Platonic worldview that has kind of displaced a biblical worldview of creation. So in Plato, who's a Greek philosopher, um, just a few hundred years before the arrival of Christ, the birth of Christ, and in Plato, the world that appears to our senses, the physical world around us that we can see, is intrinsically defective and filled with error. And in some way, the soul is trapped within this physical world. So actually, Plato has a different view of creation than Genesis 1 and 2. Because Plato doesn't say the world is tov. He doesn't say creation is tov. He, he doesn't. He says that, that creation, that the physical stuff around us that we see, is to be escaped from. And so he focuses on the soul. The soul must be liberated from the physical. But that's contrary to Genesis 1 and 2 and God's good creation. We are not liberators of the soul from this creation as if the two can be separated. But rather God is involved in the restoration of what he's created. Because it was very tov. And in Platonism, it's the escape from this intrinsically evil earthly realm to another place. Now, some of you may be wondering, what on earth has this got to do with the heavens and the earth? It's an escape in Platonism from this intrinsically evil earthly realm. The escape of the soul from the body from one place to the other, which is why Often in the church, we've moved to language like, let's save souls. As if nothing else matters. When actually lots of other things matter. Because when God made it all, he said it's good. And it's worthy of restoration. Rather than a holistic shalom salvation for creation and humanity we wrap it up in a soul salvation one decision and then you're liberated into somewhere up there which we'll also discover is not particularly biblical either for the end of the story and so we've been influenced by that philosophy of thinking and out of the original Hebrew Old Testament and New Testament understanding 
of the fact that creation is tov. And God is redeeming all things. And so what happens is that in this corruption entering creation, Plato would say, we just escape it. But the Bible says, God will renew it. And that's where we stand. Not in the escape, but in the renew. Now, I want to say something this morning that um, I want to check and just make sure you understand what I'm saying here. That escapist idea that we have of somehow getting out of this and somewhere else can lead to insensitive, aggressive, even manipulative or coercive evangelism. Now, let me tell you, I am all in for evangelism. We call people to faith in Jesus Christ. But sometimes when we have an escapist view of all of this, the whole deal is about getting people to put up hands to Jesus, and then that's it. Let me tell you, getting people to put their hands up to Jesus is a piece of cake. Getting them to walk with Jesus, that's a whole other matter. And we were called to make disciples, not converts. And part of the problem is, is because in some parts we have had this escapist, just get them saved and they'll be fine, their souls are saved, that's it. That's not it. We're called to make disciples who are concerned about what God is doing, the mission of God, which is the restoration of all things. That's why I said at the beginning, this is an opening series of discipleship. Bible view is creation is good. The whole earth is full of his glory. Yes, it's corrupted by evil and sin and our rebellion from God, but God is ultimately restoring the earth to its very tov place. And so in the Bible, and I, I do love this, in the Bible, the movement is always from the heavens or from heaven to earth. Have you noticed that? Almost always the movement of God is from heaven to earth. Creation to a renewed creation. Even Jesus' prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? As it is in heaven. The movement is from earth to heaven. Even thinking about our understanding of resurrection and the afterlife. We in the Christian church, mainstream Christian belief is of the physical resurrection. Some of you may feel depressed about that reality. Really? (laughs) But it will be a perfect physical resurrection. Bodily resurrection. Why? Because matter matters to God. He created it and he saw that it was good. And so that actually in the end of all things... It is the reign of heaven coming to earth and to the heavens. The restoration of God's reign here on earth in a renewed creation of the earth. The movement of God is from heaven to earth. Okay, that's a little to help us understand why sometimes the cultural influences on us or the philosophical influences on us sometimes take us 
down directions that are not necessarily solid biblical theology. And so I want us now to go to the end of the story. What is this then about heaven and earth? And where are we all in it? How does that really work? Well, the purpose of Revelation is not to paint a picture of what we will eventually escape to. That's sometimes how we understand it as the Christian church. And we'll just escape this and get up there to heaven. The purpose of Revelation is not to paint a picture of what we will eventually escape to as the people of God, but rather to shape us and shape how we live in this new creation that is unfolding now on earth as it is in heaven, that God will complete at one day sometime in the future. Revelation offers an alternative vision of the world, of the earth, of humanity, a new creation under the shalom reign of God, which God's people are to fully enter and fully embrace and fully live and point people to now in the way we live and in what we see. Richard Baucom puts it like this. John, the writer of Revelation, takes his readers into heaven in order to see the world from the heavenly perspective. He draws back the curtain of the future so that they can see the present from the perspective of God's ultimate purpose for the world. So Revelation is about helping the church see where God is going, what the new future is to be like, and then to enter it and to live into it and to demonstrate it and to point other people to it and say, come and join us with Jesus in the here and now in the restoration of all things. Michael Gorman. The book of Revelation is, above all, a community-forming document intended to shape believers in Jesus as the Lamb of God into more faithful and missional communities of worship and witness. It's not to tell us about what we'll escape to. It's to form us and shape us into what we are and will be as God restores his whole creation back to something that is very told. Do you see the difference in that sense of, oh, we just escape from here and we get to heaven? No, heaven is breaking into earth and renewing. And in the final day, it will not just be the heavens, but the earth that is completely renewed. And God will make his dwelling there. We'll not all be floating around in some kind of disembodied, kind of little spirit thing bumping into each other. But there'll be a physical resurrection of the body across the renewing of the earth and the heavens. And the church must become both a sign and a foretaste of this new creation. Not just saying, oh, well, it'll come sometime. We are to be the sign and the foretaste so that people can see and understand but also experience. That's what it means by foretaste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So that in being part of a redeemed community, the church, people will taste and see of this kingdom, shalom, reign 
of God. That's what we're called to be. That's a pretty high calling. We are to demonstrate the tove of what God is doing in his restoration. And so let's read about what we are to be a sign and a foretaste of when we go to the end of the Bible and to the last two books. So let's read from Revelations 21 and 22 where we talk about the new earth and the new heaven, but the new earth that has a new city and where Eden is restored in chapters 21 and 22. So let's go to the first five verses of each chapter. Revelation 21. Then John says in this vision that he has, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Now, why is there no sea? In ancient times, um, the sea was often understood as a, a chaotic place with evil forces in it. Ain't going to be no sea. And this restored shalom reign of God. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Note the direction. To the earth. The restoration of all things. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Coming to restore kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them on the earth in all its beauty and recreation of very tov. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, if you're familiar with scripture, you will notice that is the promise and the, the longing of God all the way through scripture. You will be my people and I will be your God and I will be with you and you will be with me. That's the heart of God in every generation. So that's Revelation 1. And then it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying <coughs> or pain for the old order of things all the corruption, all the rebellion and all the damage that sin has caused has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Oh, you long for that. And somehow as followers of the Lamb of God who sits on the throne and who is restoring all things, we should be a people who live in ways that for those who are mourning or in pain or are suffering, we are the love and the shalom and the care and the peace. Well, if we jump into Revelation 22, we read this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Sounds awful like some of the creation stories in Genesis chapter 2. As clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And where's the city? It's on the earth now. This is heaven on earth. <coughs> on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Genesis 2. Talking about the tree of life. Bearing 12 crops of fruit. Yielding its fruit every month. 
and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Reminds me of Ezekiel 47 as, as the river runs out of the temple and all of these trees and vegetation grows along the side, representative of God's people who should be a healing to the nations. And God calls us to follow Jesus, the Lamb of God. It's for the healing of the nations. The restoring of the shalom reign of God here on earth as it is in heaven. We are to become the leaves of healing to the brokenness of our world. And no longer will there be any curse. No, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Here on earth, heaven to earth. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light or a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever on this very told earth and these very told heavens. That's where we're heading. But when we follow Jesus, the Lamb of God, we must start living the future in the present. And that's the challenge. To somehow demonstrate this future kingdom in the here and now. Just as Jesus said, Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth among us as it is in heaven. And so he calls people to himself to follow Christ, to live the future today. That's what this community of God's people should feel like, wherever you are, whether we're gathered here together like this or whether you're out doing whatever you do from every other day in the week. It should feel like we're living the future now in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're called to in this great restoration of the shalom room of God. I found this a helpful summary and I'm just going to summarize it because we spoke about some of this last week. But what does that living the future today look like? What's the character of this new Jerusalem? And how does that New Jerusalem helps set the agenda for the church and for Christian mission, for us to join in the mission of God. And Dean Fleming, um, who's written a book called The Full Mission of God, he summarizes the book of Revelation in these seven ways. And he says, this is the character of the New Jerusalem that we need to live out today, bringing this future in today. The first is this, restored fellowship with God and with others. Harmony with God and with each other. We spoke about that a lot last week. That harmony between us and God, but also us with each other. The harmony of human relationships. Second is a world-embracing multinational community. That's what it means when Revelation talks about every tribe and nation being in this restored new creation. 
that people of all nations and tongues and cultures and colors and backgrounds and ethnicities are embraced and loved and welcomed into this new creation community. We should be multinational. And we are. But yet there are still times where divisions seem to get in. And there is separation and exclusion and keeping out. But that's not a demonstration of the renewed creation and kingdom of God. A holy community, cleansed and delivered from sins and from the power of sin. The curse has been broken in Christ and in the resurrection and now in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we want to live in ways that are not just cleansed from our sins, but even the power of sin is broken in our lives in Christ and the Spirit. A holy community, a healing community. That vision of the river of life with all this, these trees growing and their leaves will be healing of the nations. That's us. But also in Revelation, we hear about the alleviating of pain and misery, that no more crying and pain and sorrow, caring for those who do. How do we do that? Sixth one is social and economic justice. In Revelation, you have two cities or two reigns. There's the reign in the city of God, Jerusalem, and there's Babylon. And they're pitched against each other. And Babylon is known for gathering power and riches at the cost of others. They gather and accumulate their wealth and power and riches by exploiting others and leaving them with nothing. You'll find that in Revelation 18. Whereas in the New Jerusalem, all the riches are equally shared. Everyone has access to it all. There's justice, social and economic justice. The New Jerusalem, their riches are shared by everyone. There is no hoarding, no exclusive neighborhoods, no poverty in the New Jerusalem. As somebody who lives what I would regard as a privileged life, I can't discount the justice nature of this new creation and this new Jerusalem when I think about living the future in the present. And the last one is the renewal of creation. The new Jerusalem is a lush urban garden, a picture of paradise perfectly providing for its joyful inhabitants. Good news to creation as well as good news to humanity. I mean, that sounds amazing, doesn't it? But it's not easy to be a sign and a foretaste of this shalom kingdom that is being established on earth as it is in heaven. 
Because there are pressures and allegiances and temptations that will seek to distract us more towards Babylon than towards the new Jerusalem. It is difficult to live the future kingdom in the here and now. And the context of Revelation, when it was written, is that the church were increasingly under threat and facing the reality of persecution. But at a time of writing, the greater temptation is the temptation to accommodate Rome's way of thinking and living, the culture that was around them, the new Babylon. Rome was the new Babylon. Their way of thinking and living that was opposite. It was opposed to Jesus' way of thinking and being and living. And the temptation was just to kind of get absorbed back into Rome's way of living instead of Jerusalem's way of living. It was a temptation to simply capitulate to Rome's rule rather than God's rule. Babylon is spoken of in Revelation 14 to 19, symbolic of the proud human empires of every era. Just so happens to be Rome then. But it's talking about the systems and structures that give authority and allegiance to themselves, not God. And Rome was the Babylon of first and second century Christianity. An expanding empire, exploitative empire that was focused and motivated by its own prosperity, its own power, its own prestige, that more than the well-being of those they ruled. The wealthy, the influential, the powerful, and the systems and structures they sought to protect for their own benefit, That is what Revelation says, is the Babylon. And Revelation is calling the church out of Babylon to live out the new Jerusalem now. Not waiting for the future when we'll all escape out of this. But to say, you're my people who live the new Jerusalem now. Come out of Babylon. But coming out of Babylon... It's not easy. It's not a physical escape or withdrawal, but a departure and a break from being complicit in this generation's idolatry or greed or oppression or injustice or immorality. We're not going to be physically escaping for it, from it, but we break from being complicit in its idolatry, greed, oppression injustice, immorality. Coming out of Babylon church is courageous, but it's costly. We're in the world, but we're not of it. This is the tension that we live in as we live the future today. 
some questions. What would it mean for Christian communities to come out of Babylon today? In the first place, we must seek to discern by the Spirit's guidance where Babylon is to be found. It might be nearer than we think. Where in the world do governments or corporations increase their own wealth and security at the expense of powerless people? Where do nations use political, military or economic force to promote self-serving policies? Where do political or economic powers act in ways that demand idolatrous allegiance? And these are tough questions that we have to wrestle with as the church when we think about being called out of Babylon. This is whole-scale transformation and change. Where do individuals and societies cuddle the culture god of consumerism? By the way, I never wrote these. (laughs) But I find them a great challenge. Where do individuals and societies cuddle the culture god of consumerism? And that strikes right to the heart of who I am. So easily wrapped up in consumerism. That causes all kinds of damage in all kinds of places, including my own self. And in what ways are Christians drawn into being an accomplice to the ways of Babylon, whether actively or passively. Do you know why it's so important that we make sure our allegiance is in the right place? Because every Babylon will fall. And only the kingdom of God will reign. Back the right kingdom and enter fully the restoring shalom reign of God because the kingdoms of this world they are falling open your eyes and look around it's already happening and it will continue to happen in every generation but God's kingdom it will reign and he is bringing the future into the present in this new creation. What is Revelation and the end of the story asking us? It's asking which vision of the world, of the earth, will you accommodate and give allegiance to? Which reality? The shalom reign of God or the fracturing reign of this world? Which vision? Which vision will you take for your own life? The vision of God's future or the vision of the world's future? Friends, we are called to be a sign and a witness and a foretaste of this coming kingdom of God. May our allegiance be clear and courageous even though it will be costly. In Jesus' name.